Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic consultant with a bipartisan firm, Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So happy new year, everybody, and welcome back. New and old listeners, we're refreshed and ready to tackle 2016. And uh, thanks to you guys, we know the show is really getting out there. So an example of how we know the show is getting out there, Nisha, who's been my colleague for about 10 years, uh, for a long, long time. She was on vacation in Chile, of all places, and met some folks who were part of Team Trudeau in Canada, um, who everybody on the left, maybe Kristen's not hearing this as much, has a bit of a political crush on <laughs> the newest Trudeau. Um, and anyway, but they apparently in their office have a bit of a podcast crush on us because they say, oh, my God, you work with the pollsters and – we all love the pollsters and because we've done, as you know, a lot of coverage of the Canadian election. So hello, Team Trudeau. And Nisha actually does our website, thepolsters.com, which we don't spend a lot of time on because it's there when people stumble upon us. But it looks cool. It's got a cool color in the background. We have funny images sometimes. So you can check it out. Nisha does that. And Nisha reported back that in via Chile, Canadians like the pollsters. So, so I, I get about 50 percent of my Justin Trudeau coverage from a fashion blog that I read. <laughs> <laughs> called Go Fug Yourself, oh, F-U-G. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I used they, to read that pretty They cover, regularly. in addition to Hollywood celebrities, they do great coverage of royals fashion and not just Kate and William. I mean, right. we're talking like leaders of countries that you'd have never heard of. Great. You know. I love that. Um, and so, but they, they have Justin Trudeau and uh, Mrs. Trudeau have been part of their coverage. And by the way, this week they have a post up at Go Fug Yourself Asking readers to say, hey, what are podcasts that you like? What are oh. podcasts you enjoy listening to? And I thus far have had too much pride to, like, comment as, like, a fake name. Like, oh, there's this podcast, <laughs> The Bolsters. It's really great. Sock I haven't done it. Go fuck yourself. But um, if any of you would like to go to GoFugYourself.com and uh, go find this post, it's really – it's a great – funny blog about is, style and fashion. I used to read it. Well, it sounds like a micro assignment now. I think that's, that's a new micro assignment for 2016. 
Yeah, so you can, you know, suggest us to NPR or you can go to the comment section at Go Fug Yourself. All sounds good. Those are all those all work. We'll take all of it. So, Kristen, you have a big announcement. What is your yes, big announcement? Yes, so this week uh, I am starting as a columnist for the Washington Examiner. Um, I'm still going to be doing all of my polling stuff, still echelon full time, still in the polling world. Um, but for Washington Examiner, I'll do a column called The Bright Side where we're going to be focusing on sort of good news or like what's the bright side of of, you know, some issue that seems horrible or unpleasant. Like right now, I've, my column is about 2016 and how even though this is a horribly depressing election and most of the candidates have really bad favorables, this could actually be exactly the election that America needs. Um, and it's also going to involve a web show every week where just for like 10 minutes, I interview somebody who's doing cool stuff at think tanks or policy or tech um, about how they're solving problems or coming up with cool new stuff that people haven't heard of yet. So check it out, Washington Examiner. Um, uh, this is my my new adventure for the year. That's right. And the pollsters will still be on your oh, yes. phone every week. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So what are the top lines? Uh, top lines for this week. Uh, cruising along, Ted Cruz remains well positioned in Iowa, even as the race devolves into bizarre discussions of whether Cruz is even legally allowed to be president. Trump and birtherism is back. Um, plus, in Iowa, Hillary Clinton remains in the front, but Sanders is still trucking along and actually still sort of gaining support. Um, so don't count him out. Then we'll take a look at New Hampshire, where the real fun is on the Republican side. But as the GOP delegate race stretches onward, we're going to be looking across the country beyond just those first two states. So we'll take a look at California, as well as a big national study of where the delegates are going to come from for all of these GOP candidates. Then this is an angry election. Um, what's driving people to feel angry in their lives? We'll take a look at an NBC Esquire poll that tackles this subject. And finally, it's a new year with New Year's resolutions. What pledges are popular for 2016? So great. So first, we're going to just start with a quick number of the week. And the number of the week is 75%. That's the new number that Pew is going to say it's going to be its target for the percent of respondents they're going to reach on their cell phones for 2016. I mean, that is really incredibly high, 75%. It's very high and very expensive. Yes. That is not the sort of number that the vast majority of, of nonprofits would have the ability to do. Legislative candidates. Legislative candidates. Even some corporate clients, I imagine, would balk if all of a sudden my next proposal to them is 75% cell phones because a cell phone interview, for reasons we have discussed on this show previously at length, are significantly more expensive to do. And the new FCC regulations make it harder and harder to do them. Right. So this is this is like the 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 collision course of, hey, 75% cell phones may become the norm but it's is it cheaper or is it more expensive now because of the regulations? Is this going to just or is this a sustainable thing for most pollsters to live up to? So I think there are going to be a couple implications of this new 75 percent number. First of all, if you are struggling sometimes, although we have less of the struggle now than we used to, to convince a client that they need to do cell phone cell phone interviews, you're going to have an easier time saying, look, Pew does 75%. Okay, we should do 40. <laughs> so, I mean, before, in the last couple of cycles, you could, depending on where you were or what the candidate's situation was, they could say, well, you know, this is New England and the population's a little older, so you don't really need to do cells, that sort of thing. It, now you really have to say it's got to be 40% or or, to, or more because yeah. Pew, I think you really can't be that much lower than 40. I mean, some places do 30, but, you know, it used to be 10 to 20. You know, that that's just not going to cut it anymore. Um, 
um, because they're finding that about half of Americans are cell only. That's why they've moved this to 75%. So that's one implication. I think the other implication is you're going to have a lot of places go now online. Your yep. the move to online is going to seem way more attractive from a cost perspective, given you have to reach 75% on their cell phones. And then, you know, I think the third thing is people are going to be looking at public polls more differently and saying, okay, well, if Pew's done this now, what's happening for other kinds of media outlets? Are they going to move to 75% online? And maybe, the, you know, I guess maybe there's one fourth, which is are people going to be do online for cells? That's that other way of kind of getting around yeah. the cell phone piece instead of reaching them on their actual iPhone. You are having 75% of your interviews or your cell phone only, 40%, 50%, whatever number you decide are going to be cell phone respondents. Do those online as opposed to on cell phones, but the rest with landlines. But I'm, I'm very excited that Pew's put this study out because Pew is always the one of the best about being at the forefront of explaining new evolution in methodology or what's going on in the polling world. I mean, they had a great study a couple of years back about declining response rates and how, you know, response rates were down in the single digits, but how that wasn't, you know, it was kind of a problem, but not really. And those sorts of things have been very helpful to me when talking to clients who are like, what's the response rate on the poll? And you say, well, it's 8%. And they go, oh, my God, like, what did I just buy? And you have to explain like, no, 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 that's actually totally standard. Don't worry. I didn't screw anything up. And I can send them this Pew article to say, like, look. Even Pew Research Center dot, dot, dot says. And so I like that they are constantly putting out these methodological things that are – they are – wonky, right? <laughs> but con- but kind of consumable and right. it has the credibility of the Pew Research Center. And so now when I approach a client and I say like, here's why we really do need 40, 50 percent cells. Right. It's not just me making this up that all of a sudden they've thrown some kind of crazy sticker shock at them and they're like, what are you talking about? Right. I-, I can say this is becoming the industry standard. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a uh... It's a pretty, it's a pretty freaking high number. I mean, that's you know, that's a lot. It's, it strikes me, and it also raises the question about you know, do you need different percentages of cell phones for different audiences? I mean, how many Iowa caucus goers are cell phone only? Right. These are the questions that confront political pollsters because we are usually looking at these weirdly geographically and demographically targeted audiences that's that's different than if you're like doing market research to study your what type of potato chips you should sell right. you know it, it's just it's a and different... all that stuff by the way is now moved online the potato right. chips no nope, they're not doing the telephone studies about pe- uh, potato chips no. so uh I, but i'm i'm very thankful for pew that they've put this out even if it just means <laughs> it's going to be so much more expensive to that's do right. our job open up your wallet everybody oh my gosh <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk 2016. Let's talk about what's going on in Iowa. Uh, So on the Republican side, Ted Cruz is now number one in the Huffington Post pollster polling average. Um, As of press time, he was almost at 31 percent averaging in the polls with Trump uh, at about 28 percent. Marco Rubio trailing fairly significantly, coming in about 12.5 percent. And then everyone else is, is in the single digits, including Ben Carson, who, remember, briefly had a moment in the sun when he was the number one leading in the polls in Iowa. That has completely collapsed. He's he, had staff leave over the holidays. Yeah, he, he was on that collision course with Trump yeah. and he lost. 
and now it's just beginning to disintegrate. You know, what's interesting is the first time you saw Cruz beat Trump in a poll in Iowa coincided with Trump just starting to unload on Cruz, just starting to attack him, right? And you see that now again. When did he make the comment about Cruz and and citizenship today, yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been this week. It, this is the and he's been making weird comments about whether Ted Cruz is really an evangelical or not, which seems odd because not really his. That's not really Trump's bread and butter. But uh, at any rate, you know, Cruz up until this point has been very hesitant to hit back at Donald Trump, having seen that you yeah. know other candidates who have tried have failed. Um, for Cruz, winning Iowa is really important because it's it's not impossible, but it's far less likely that he'll win New Hampshire. Um, and so if he's the guy that can knock off Trump in Iowa, immediately he's the guy to beat. Immediately he can come in third or second or third in New Hampshire and still cr- cruise along, as it were. Oh, That's my right. God. So many great puns. I know, right? <laughs> so many great puns. Um so so I will will be interesting. But at the moment, it seems like it's a clash between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and will be decided based on do these new Trump voters, not necessarily new registrants, but people who are registered voters who never participate in caucuses. Do they suddenly start to participate in caucuses and reshape the Iowa caucus electorate in Trump's favor? Right. And so we're going to talk about that because there's been some new data yeah. from civics on that. And the Democratic side in Iowa, I mean, it kind of looks like Snoozeville. If you look at we're looking at the Huffington Post pollster. <laughs> the Democratic primary Snoozeville. Say it's not so much. <laughs> I mean, there hasn't been a lot of change. I mean, if you look at this, this chart. The Republican right? chart looks like like you put like six fifth graders <laughs> With like a box of permanent markers and we're like, please don't mess up this beautiful new white sofa. That sounds and they like were just my like, Christmas nope. vacation. It's <laughs> basically what I did over the holidays was something that resembled the Republican <laughs> primary vote trend line. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of snoozeville. Clinton's at 52, Sanders at 37. Um, they both have been moving kind of incrementally over the last month or two. In- Sanders has been consistently gaining. He's been consistently gaining. I mean, Clinton's been consistently gaining. I mean, you know, is the gap just a hair and error, maybe just a whisker? But, you know, she's still clearly, I mean, she's a 52%. That's still, uh, she's stronger here than she is in New Hampshire, where they're basically essentially tied. But nonetheless, I mean, there is movement here. On both sides is that gap narrowing. Is it going to narrow in time when we have less than a month to go? Um, Republicans in New Hampshire, turning to New Hampshire, which is just right after the Iowa caucuses, there's always talk, has Trump hit his ceiling, right? Does Trump have a ceiling? Has he hit it? And you know, the answer is, well, he's going to have some ceiling. We don't know. Is that ceiling 100 percent or 35 percent? We don't know. But if you look at the New Hampshire Republican trend line, it does really quite look like a ceiling. <laughs> yeah, it levels off around October. That he hits not this peak around 27 percent and it just kind of stays there. Um, and and the but then below him, there's this huge gap. And then you have like six different candidates all just bunched up right on top of each other. Marco Rubio, 13.6%. Ted Cruz, 12.5%. Christie, 11%. Kasich, 7.7%. Jeb, almost 7%. I mean, it's like these five are all clustered right up on each other. And what's what a the the buzz in, I think, uh, Republican establishment people suffering from deep denial. Circles. Yeah. What th- what I have been hearing is, well, eventually, you know, 
let's say Trump wins Iowa, some of these establishment guys, maybe they'll drop out so that we can all like coalesce around someone. And that's like you don't understand game theory if you think that that's going to happen. It's like the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma, right? Like, OK, you can you can do something that might be a little bit harmful to you, but will be good for everyone in the long run. Like you the, who who has an incentive to drop out? Like, as we'll talk about when we talk about the civis thing. You know, there are going to be a lot of delegates picked up all over the country, different pockets of support for different candidates all over the country. If if you're somebody like a Chris Christie or a Kasich or, you know, why would you why drop out? Yeah. Why drop out just to like, oh, we're all going to band together and stop Trump. No, they're going to stay in because they're going to try to collect as many delegates as they can. Unless they're miserable. Which this, they could be, right? I mean, they could be. Um, we are we are at a stage of the campaign where like Marco Rubio is getting attacked for his like the boots that he wears. Like this can't be fun. This has to just be like the most horrible slog ever. Um, New Hampshire Democrats. So super not close. Snoozeville. Not it's not turbulent. It's not but turbulent. it will it's potentially tight. come down to the wire. It's going to come down to the wire. Sanders is at forty eight. Clinton at forty six. That's a two point spread. It's been basically that tight for a while. It seems like it's gotten a little tighter. Um, but Sanders has been up since August, according to, again, this is the HuffPost, Polster.com average. So we will see how these things change. And also, again, I think it's worth pointing out, Iowa is first, then New Hampshire, and uh, all that stuff will scramble after Iowa. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, people will drop out, and New Hampshire voters are watching, and the coverage will change, all that stuff. Yep, so. everything will reshuffle. You, At least on the Republican side, you may. That may be the moment that you have some of these folks that are kind of Iowa-only candidates, like a Santorum. Like, that may be their – maybe they will drop out at that point. Because if you can't pull a delegate in Iowa, like, where are you going to pull a delegate? However, California – so typically Republicans think of California as like the, you know, this insanely blue state, uh, super moderate-ish, lefty. But California Republicans may not be what you think they are. So the field poll, it's sort of the like historically one of the big polls of California voters. They did a study to figure out who's ahead in the Republican primary in California. Now, California is not one of these or, you know, it's not Iowa. It's not New Hampshire. It's not South Carolina. But remember, if this is a cluttered race, people are going to be trying to pick up delegates from anywhere. And I right. think California is one of those states where – Congressional district by congressional district, you can pick up delegates in really blue areas where there aren't many Republican voters. But you find like the six Republicans that live in Palo Alto. Right. And boom, you've got yourself a delegate. Right. While, you know, in Iowa, you've got to go like eat five thousand sticks of butter to get that same delegate. Right. Um, so, <laughs> OK. You have to eat five thousand pounds of kale to get that Republican voter. Exaggeration. In but um, so so the field poll found that Ted Cruz leads among California Republicans, 25 percent, followed by Trump at 23. Uh, this is surprising to some. My colleague at Echelon, Victor, he is a Californian um, and was quick to remind us all at the office that California Republicans are not what you think they are, that California Republicans are not actually so different from like – 
you know, tea party, right. like that it's, it's, it's not, you know, you think, oh, California, so, but no, a, no, 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 no. There's all kinds of stuff going out there. Right. There's it's Bakersfield it's, and Fresno and Modesto. And, yeah. Don't, don't let it, the fact that it's a super blue state fool you into thinking that it's like Kasich territory or Christie territory. You know, it's, is a whole different ball game. And so this to me was a fascinating poll because Cruz is someone that I've always heard has built up a really good operation built for picking up de- – like built for delegate count. Mm-hmm. But that's the machine that he's built. So this poll, very interesting. When we get to the final of the California primary, you can remember. You heard it here first. Uh, Cruz doing well even in states that you might not think of as natural Cruz territory. So this is a pretty cool study that New York Times – did the upshot, Nate Cohn, um, and it worked with Civis, which is a uh, political data uh, analytical firm, uh, Democratic-leaning. They did interviews with about 11,000, sorry, 11,000 Republican-leaning uh, voters since August. And this story, I think, was appeared in the Times over the break. Um, and so they look at actual vote history. I think they're able to, you know, do interviews, but also look at the actual uh, history that each person has on the file. So connected to actual addresses, not just all self-report. Which is self-report. so important if you can do that. Right. Because then you get things like turnout score and their registration in states that have party registration and their, uh, their census tract, which is important because then they can look at, uh, who they think is Latino, not just based on, you know, based on last name, but also the census tract and what percent of the census tract is Latino, those kinds of things. So they found some interesting, uh, findings here. So some of the stuff you've probably seen in other, analysis about Trump voters. One is that he does better with lower propensity voters, right? That's something that uh, we've seen a lot of reporting on and has been part of people's concerns about Trump, or at least the, what they think might happen with Trump, is that he won't be able to mobilize voters. He doesn't have that kind of infrastructure on the ground. And he also does better with people who are less likely to vote, period. So Getting those folks to to turn out is a heavy organizational lift. It's a heavy lift regardless of what kind of organization you have. And I think it was Bloomberg Politics that did a piece a week or so ago where they went to a Trump rally and asked people, do you know how to caucus? And, you know, people hadn't or didn't know. I think that's where it was. But so that's it's similar to that sort of story. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is that among People who say they are self-identified as Republican, but they are actually registered as Democrats. Those people are disproportionately likely to support Trump as people who self-identify as Republicans and are also registered as Republicans. So he does best with the Democratic-leaning Republican base, right? Which, you know, those those are people who are going to be hard to turn out, right? They because they're less likely to vote in primaries. They also found that people who are uh, more downscale uh, in terms of their socioeconomic status or their education level, so people who um, are come from areas where fewer people have bachelor's degrees, those folks are more disproportionately like Trump. Uh, older voters a little bit more likely to like Trump, and men more likely to like Trump than women. Uh, whites more likely to like Trump than, than Latino. I guess I shouldn't say like Trump, vote for Trump. Um, now, they... They note, though, that he leads still with all these groups. So we're not talking about, you know, people talk about women and Latinos and, you know, how they're not going to vote for Trump. Among Republicans, they are. They are voting for Trump. They just vote mm-hmm. for Trump in, in slightly lower numbers. So I think that's important thing to, to remember is that he, you know, he is so clearly ahead. He, he's ahead with a variety of groups. It's just a question by how much with whom. Then the last thing, and this is where 
this gets particularly interesting, right, is um, they looked at the areas where Trump does best, right, where he's the most popular. And here they are looking at popularity. And there's some areas in the South in particular. And then they compare that to areas where this is analysis the Times has done before, looking at Internet searches that are racially charged. And Nate Cohn argues, look, I know we talk about this at the Times. I sometimes think that we overstate the importance or overstate the importance of looking at internet searches and saying, okay, well, people are have more racial bias in these areas based on their internet searches because people do all kinds of internet searches for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Are we overestimating that? But nonetheless, you see a lot of similarity between Trump support and areas where people Google racially charged things, questions. With notable exceptions like, for instance, Texas. Texas is a place where Donald, the state is is almost blank in terms of, uh, you know, support for Donald Trump. And, and presumably that's because Ted Cruz does yes. very well there. Meanwhile, on the, the map of sort of racially charged internet searches, Texas does have a little bit more activity than compared to the Trump map. But, but overall, I thought this was interesting. The Google search estimates, though, are from 2004 to 2007. Mm. I mean, that's kind of old, right? I, I mean, I, I, I don't I, I love studies like this. I, I don't want to like, you know, beat it up or anything. But when I saw that, I said Google search that's estimates 10 years from ago. 2004 to 2007. That's a long time ago. Um, so is the you know, how much is this correlation or I, I don't know. And, and I mean, and part of it was like, well, yeah, I could also make a map of like, places that have really good barbecue restaurants like oh look donald trump does really well in places with lots of barbecue restaurants right i mean i i don't know i I don't know what to make of that i mean what i do think is fascinating though is this point about trump doing so well among independents and democrats who identify as republicans because it, it just further underscores that like trump's not a base republican candidate he is this totally weird right separate new political animal um, and frankly, for those who are like Trump truthers who believe that Trump is actually still just a plant, <laughs> that he's really just like a saboteur <laughs> trying to destroy the GOP, uh, this piece of data could further uh, support those claims. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> Trump truthers. Yeah. I don't know how many of them listen to the show. Do you know there is a Twitter account that's like Trump polling data or something? And it's Data Donald Trump? Yeah. And he doesn't have a lot of followers or he or she. But it's pretty – I think it's pretty funny given how often we see Trump make up uh, funny things about polling data. Um, but you know what? I feel sensitive, especially now that I have so many Republican friends and colleagues, of when we have stories that are like, aha, Republicans are racist. <laughs> well, we're not going to say that exactly, but we're going to apply it. Here's a chart. And I, I find that a little troubling. I could appreciate that Republicans are establishment – are sick of seeing that those kinds of stories. I can appreciate that that's tiresome on the right more so than the left. I guess. Is well, we had the we had the whole Agraba. This is my PPP. I love my troll polls. <laughs> that you know, b- back before right. the holidays, PPP did this poll about how many Republicans want to bomb Agraba, which is the country from Aladdin. It's not a real country. Um, and and it, this was actually one of the first times that I've seen a Republican pollster troll back. So Chris Wilson, um, WPA Research, they're actually, it's Cruz's pollster. Um, they did a sort of response troll poll where they asked something like, should we admit refugees 
fleeing the conflict in Agrabah. And like a huge number of Democrats said yes. <laughs> so they were like, look, it cuts both ways, guys. Like, <laughs> That's good. That's funny. Um, you know, so so the, the troll polling business has now become a bipartisan affair for sure. <laughs> That's great. You know what doesn't, we're going to talk about anger in a second. What does not make me angry or irritable or tired is troll polls and people trolling each other back. I find that all very entertaining. <laughs> um, but speaking of this, like, aha, we found racial tensions and everybody look here. I feel like that's a little bit of what came out of the Esquire poll about the angry electorate. So they did this study, and I think the idea of it is fantastic. And they partnered with NBC News and SurveyMonkey, Chuck Todd, who we've had on the show, has been talking about this, SurveyMonkey, we've talked about them. A variety of times, too. So they all work together on this poll. I think it's a really interesting idea to get at this sense of what what are people angry about? And and certainly it's no surprise to us, and we've talked about this as well, that voters are angry about all sorts of things. And they did some kind of cool things in this in the study, um, which, again, as always, new listeners, we link to in our show notes so you can find all the links to all this stuff. But they asked people, like, how angry would you be about this headline? And so they asked people to rate their anger over a variety of headlines that might happen Um and some of them were political and some of them were a little more fun. Um, but, you know, what they found were a lot of people are angry overall. You know, how angry are you about something in the news? And that's, you know, almost two-thirds are, you know, angry about something or about two-thirds are angry about stuff they see in the news at least once a day. I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot. And about half people say they get more angry than they used to. And white women in particular are more likely to say that they're angry than white men or than non-white women and non-white men. So, all of that is pretty interesting. Um, they don't really break this stuff out by party, but they do particularly often. But they do uh, look at some of the stuff by gender and race. I mean, what did you find, Kristen, when you looked at this that was stood out to you? Uh, so one of the things that stood out to me is that you know the well, one they they ask based on race who uh, who gets how often do you get angry? And of course, as you mentioned, you know it's uh, whites say they get angry at least once a day, compared with fifty six percent of blacks and sixty six percent of Hispanics. Um, that Republicans are more likely to get angry at least once a day. When they broke it up by income, it's the middle class that gets the most angry. That actually, if you're very rich or you're very poor, you're less likely to say that you read or hear something in the news that makes you angry. Now, one of the questions that I, I wasn't able to find an answer to is how often, you know, I I might be one of those people that says I read something in the news that makes me angry a few times a day, but that's because I'm reading the news all, all day, day long. long. Right. Um, and I work in politics. So it's so, you know, but I don't think of myself as an angry voter. So I wonder if if news consumption, I mean, if you're the sort of person that like your news consumption is you watch the evening news, you might be a once a day or a once a week angry person right. by virtue of your news consumption rather than your actual level of anxiety or anger toward toward whatever. Right, right. And, you know, then they uh, they also asked a lot of questions. And here's the thing that I think we should pause and, and think about, right? They they asked about Congress was dysfunctional, right? That's one of the headlines that people had to rate how angry they, they, they were. Massive consumer fraud. But they also ask about um, police brutality, uh, billionaire uh, vowing to spend $500 million on elections. Um, they ask about uh, which um, uh, which this is what I thought was particularly interesting, which groups have a right to be angry about how they're treated, right? So that's yeah. something that I, you know, I think is interesting. I think using the phrase anger and like 
writing out this list of groups, which are not even mutually exclusive list of groups, I, it, I found there's something about it I found. I don't want to say troubling because that's overstating it. But are we trying? Are we highlighting divisions in the survey and calling attention to divisions, or are we measuring actual divisions? And and I, I don't know quite the answer to that because we're not asking people. It's not open ended. What are you angry about? They have a variety of of um, headlines to ask people to respond to. I don't think they have an open end about what are you angry about, like how angry are you and does it affect your vote. Um, but they do you know, ask about how angry are you about um, about these groups, about how they're treated and how much of a right do you think they are to be angry about how they're treated and look at the gap between people being angry themselves about this kind of treatment of specific groups like African-Americans or LGBT or white men, uh, evangelicals. Um, so that gap between worrying about – how they're treated and whether or not they have a right to be angry. And, and and I find that, I mean, and I guess you have predictable results. You're going to have whites who are sort of less angry about how people are treated. You're going to have Hispanics who are going to be a little bit more empathetic or a smaller gap between their own concerns and what rights they feel people have to be angry. Women are more likely to feel women should be angry. I mean, you have, you know, these are all sort of predictable. I'm not surprised by some of these results. Are we highlighting racial divides and divisions maybe more than we should or maybe not exploring at the same time ways that, you know, similarities or solutions or ways people can come together. They also asked questions, you know, between genders, what are men angrier about versus women? And I mean, in some of the cases, the differences are not huge. Um, you know, more 45 percent of men said that they were angry about Caitlyn Jenner's wedding. Was that a headline? Was there? Yes, that was one of the headlines. Caitlyn Jenner gets married. Oh, so I was going to say, I'm like, uh, I am a pretty voracious <laughs> consumer of this kind of news in spite Last of myself. Last I don't recall that happening. Um, you know, but if, if Caitlyn Jenner were to get married, that would make 45% of men angry compared to 36% of women. So there were some gaps there. There was an interesting gap. They then asked respondents, which of the following words do you most closely associate with the term feminism? And there was a pretty big difference there in terms of what men and women associate with that term. 49% of women say they associate the term equality most with feminism, and only 9% chose the word anger. But among men, 36% chose equality, while 19% chose anger. Um, And then there wasn't a big difference between the proportion who said that it reminded them of the word revolution or reminded them of the word fairness. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, I mean, look, you have, the, they had three or four words, equality, anger, revolution, and fairness to describe feminism. I, you know, I'm not. What I, about empowerment? Right. What or, about, that's kind of interesting answer options. Yeah, I mean, they're interesting, right? But clearly they, they want to see how many people say anger, right? I mean, that's what the. Revolution. The Beyonce revolution. Right. I mean, yeah, I guess it's been a while since revolution was how people describe feminism. But maybe we need to bring it back. Um, I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I thought that was that was interesting. I did think – I mean, look, people should check it out because it, it did make quite a bit of news this week. Um, I think one of the other things that was kind of interesting, although it's really more of the demo difference than sort of where it ranks, is global warming. The fact that men were more angry about a global warming headline than women was something I heard people talking about. But it's still bottom tier. What is top tier – is still things like uh, consumer fraud, dysfunction of Congress, which is consistent, by the way, with something that Gallup put out today or yesterday, uh, showing that the number one problem people say is facing the country today is government dysfunction, beating the economy the second year in a row. 
That is pretty serious, everybody. I mean, that is not something that's been true in years past. That's a recent phenomenon. So this is this is part of what I talk about my column for The Washington Examiner this week is how this is an unusually angry election that we always say, oh, voters are so mad. Oh, voters are so disappointed. Oh, they feel like they're choosing between the lesser of two evils. But like we're actually in historic territory on some of these. Oh, yeah. Like this is this is and and anger can be channeled to good or to bad. Right. Uh, So is Caitlyn Jenner's. So where's Caitlyn Jenner's. Potential hypothetical wedding. <laughs> shake, shake. The, the other question I have about this, the, so that I think the headline, uh, the the use of the headlines and how angry does this headline make you feel, um, thing is really valuable. Did they get? Did they dive deeper on what part of it makes you angry? Because I, I can no. see, for instance, okay, a hypothetical headline: global warming, you know, d- temperature, ice melting at the Arctic. I, I don't know what the specific headline was that they tested. I can see people being like, that headline makes me angry. Because I don't think it's true. Because I don't think it's true. Right. So is it that people are angry because the world is getting warmer? Or are they angry because they're like, that's a bunch of baloney. Yeah. That is all crock of nonsense science. You know, I mean, so there are many different ways that you can get angry about the same headline. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, you know, so here's something. I guess it did not make me angry, but it did make me tweet a lot, which I don't normally do, which is Twitter fight, Twitter fight. <laughs> I really, I never do that. I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to have some very modest goals, and one of them is trying to do a little bit more of Twitter. Um, and so I saw 538, and this was Carl Bialik. I'm assuming it's pronounced Bialik, like a Biali with a K at the end, the, the New York onion bagel type thing for people who don't know. Um, I'm assuming that's what the name sounds like. Anyway, so Carl Bialik. I learned something new today. Oh, yes. It's very. It's kind <laughs> of like a lesser ba- – it's actually got the best parts of the bagel. But it's harder to spread stuff on. It's just like a crusty bagel top. and But you it can't like open it up and put cream cheese in it. You can just – you know, you can oh, put cream cheese on like well, this. So all, it's like an everything onion bagel. Anyway, it's – Worth checking out. It sounds pretty good. It, you probably would not find it in Washington, which is known as being pretty mm, bagel okay. poor. Um, so Carl Bialik uh, wrote a piece. It was a poll of pollsters. And since we're the pollsters, I thought, well, this is interesting. I took a look at the data set and who they interviewed. And then there were a lot of people on there, particularly women that I saw were not on the list. So I started tweeting him and he said, well, the criteria or pe- the number of public polls released in the f- 14, maybe 12 and 14 election cycles or 14 and 16 election cycles. So it's just number of polls, public polls released, which is one way, but it seemed like could, you could broaden it and diversity being important goal. But if you were, you know, you could have criteria that would then include a variety of other people. And he was very open. So this was not really a Twitter fight. This was like a Twitter discussion. No, Margie, I read Art of the Deal. <laughs> Conflict drives excitement, drives media. We've got to pick Twitter fights if we really want to get new listeners. I mean, we're getting this new is the listeners Trump strategy. without fights. We're just having a conversation <laughs> about 538. We're not <laughs> having a fight about 538. So um, so anyway, he said, well, what would be some good criteria? So well, one would be looking at FEC. I mean, this is easy for me to say because it sounds like a lot of work. Going through FEC expenditures, right, and seeing how much money is being spent at a variety of different polling shops by any sort of race. Because remember, we should not just be looking at the polling and industry in terms of 2016 presidential polling that's being released, right? We say we talk about that a lot. And their poll of pollsters, they were not not asking questions just about presidential polling, but just the future of the industry. Is it getting harder and, you know, to poll, that kind of stuff. So really we should be thinking about that definition of the industry quite broadly, not just 
have you released a horse race in Iowa? And uh, so looking at that money spent at any of these shops by any candidate running for anything or any ballot measure or anything else, that's one way. Uh, Another way would be looking at thought leadership, right? So Kristen, for example, has written a book, The Selfie Vote, available where fine books about millennials are sold, <laughs> um, or people who are the head of APOR or the, the uh, American Association of Political Consultants. So those kinds of collections and places where people can be visible, um, they should be included, right? Another way, this would also in- integrate a lot of diversity because a lot of the folks that I um, thought were not on the list that should have been have done presidential work for Barack Obama, if done polling for Barack Obama, then we're not on the list or for past presidential races. And then the last thing would be media partnerships. So if you have media partnerships, like, for example, Purple Strategies has a media partnership with Bloomberg, but, you know, other places that have media partnerships with NBC or what have you should be on the list. Some of them are, some of them aren't. So, um, so I felt like that all looking all of those together would have a bigger picture. Why not round up in terms of how we define it? I do know that I was pretty excited to have the opportunity to drop the classic anti-polling critique complaint. Well, they didn't poll me. Right. Yep. They that's didn't right. poll me. They, they didn't. didn't. Poll you. So, you know, but that's OK. I mean, because I, I don't do very much. I don't do nearly any public horse race polling. Right. Um, so if, if that's what he's looking for, if he's looking for a study of people who are putting their names on the line with horse race polls, you you I think, for instance, your media partnerships, that makes sense. Right. Um, but like Echelon, we're we're not, you know, independently publicly releasing studies of Iowa voter. I mean, we're doing stuff for clients and we're, but right. like we're not. So I, I guess I get that. If he only wanted to study people that are public facing with their data. Right. But I guess, I guess I get that. But if you're looking at the industry and the future of the industry, then you should definitely be a lot broader. Anyway, Carl, you were a good sport. And in the final exchange, he's like, well, what would be some good places and good names? I'm like, you know what? I think we're going to talk about this on the pollsters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last but not least, it's a new year. New Year's resolutions are a big topic. Um, Margie, did you make any resolutions this year? I'm trying to keep it simple. Go to yoga once a week. Get a standing desk Ooh. or a standing desk topper. Wear more gold. <laughs> that's a good. That's you know what I'm not. That's a good one. Like I'm just gonna keep it super achievable. I'm gonna empower myself for success. Yep. I, you know maybe organize my linen closet. That's it. I think I, that's it. I think, I think that's good. I think I can get through. I can get through a lot of those by the end of the month, and then call it a day. I am planning to do a big closet purge this weekend, and I am committing to only wear things that I love. Oh, that's good. KonMari, are you getting the KonMari, like the no, what? Maria Kondo book? Does it spark joy? Oh. You haven't heard about this? No, I just read the Tim Gunn book. That's good, too. Really good. Well, there's this, you know, woman in Japan who's become a celebrity about, like, if, you know, only keep things that spark joy, throw out everything that you don't want. And so I'm already a pretty good purger, but I read, like, two pages of this, and I just, like, threw out four bags of stuff. So it's time. I got to, you know. I, could just... I like it. Yeah, because the, the, in the Tim Gunn book, he's like a guide for closet purging. And it's basically, if it's something that you walk into your closet on a regular basis, and you look straight at it, and then your brain goes like, oh, I have nothing to wear. Then it shouldn't be in your closet right, anymore. It's, the same it's, thing. it's done. Yeah. Um, and you thank it. She says, thank it. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you for your service. I'm now sticking you in a box and I'm sending you down to my sisters in Florida exactly. who have been taking my hand me downs for the last three decades, but now they like them because instead of like, ew, it's Kristen's gross clothes, uh, they're like, ooh, 
Kristen right. buys fun things now. That's right. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm the worst. Like outlet malls get me every time where I'm one of those people that's like, I don't know if it fits totally right, but it's like 75% off. Yeah. I have to not do that anymore. No. Nope. No more in the new year. Don't do that. But what is seems lots of people are doing less of is actually coming up with a resolutions, period. So Marist Poll did something on this. 39% of Americans are very likely or likely to make a resolution. Um, 61% say they're not likely. Last year, 44% made a resolution. So that's down. This is like t- we're basically tied for the record low in terms of resolution making, mm-hmm. um, younger folks are more likely to make a resolution about half, but that's down from 56%. So, um, you know, I don't know what that's about, but it seems like the, the resolutions though are the same. They're basically, they don't change from year to year. You know, a plurality say it's lose weight, 12%, 10%, find a better job, getting more exercise, 9%, improving health, 9%. I mean, these are basically unchanged from before. The one thing I thought was pretty interesting was that in the Northeast, 20% want to find a better job, but in the Midwest, 12% want to quit smoking. So there's some regional differences. Yeah. I, I This actually surprised me because what is the percentage of Americans who smoke? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I even would have pegged it as high as the percentage of people who say their resolution is to quit smoking. But I think maybe that's one of those the bubble you live in bias yes. type things. Yes. Um, so, yeah, this this was pretty interesting. And younger Americans are much more likely to make resolutions, although the proportion of younger Americans making resolutions uh, is down, um, down from 56 percent last year, down to 47 percent this year. So millennials plus Gen Xers more likely to make resolutions than other groups, but less likely than they were last year. They still have the optimism that they can keep them, I guess. When you're older, you're like, ugh. I know how this is. I am who I am. I know how this is what it is. I'm not. Let's not. Let's not try to fight it. Fight against it. So, the top lines or key findings from this today: less than a month to go, and about I don't know seven thousand, eight thousand polls probably before voting begins in Iowa. Um, As the rest of the Republican field scrambles, Trump continues to dominate, especially with the crucial non-voting Democratic registered Republican (laughs) bloc. Um, and whether it's racial tensions or guns or government dysfunction, income inequality, voters are angry about a lot of different things. But expect all the candidates to harness that anger this year. Um, and if your cell phone is ringing and you're not sure who's calling, pick up. It might be Pew Research or your neighborhood friendly neighborhood pollster. And if you're reluctant to make a New, Year, a New Year's resolution, we have one for you. Share some love for the pollsters on Twitter or Facebook or write an iTunes review, or at Earbud FM, or at Go Fug Yourself. Yes, yes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at Margie O'Mero and at Soltis Anderson, or you can find both of us at, at The Pollsters. We're also at thepolsters.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Don't forget to write a review. Uh, and you can also follow us on Facebook, where throughout the week we'll post links to the stories that we think are interesting and are probably going to talk about on the show. Great. Thanks. Bye.